Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader in the digital transformation in energy management and automation. As the three Ds, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitalization, reshape the energy landscape, Schneider Electric is pioneering solutions like microgrids for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. Follow the link to Schneider Electric to find out more about how they are paving the way to the digital decentralized future. We're also brought to you by PG&E. 39% of California's greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. Did you know that most medium and heavy-duty trucks spend about one-third of their time idling and thus polluting? Well, not anymore if you go electric. EVs have no tailpipe emissions and idle. And if you're a PG&E customer, then you can take advantage of limited-time incentives with their EV fleet program. Make the smart choice by taking your fleet electric. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more by heading over to pge.com slash gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Shale Khan. Stephen Lacey is out this week, so you are stuck with me as your sole host. Once again, it happened earlier this summer when Stephen was on paternity leave. Now he just has the excuse of a small screaming baby to keep him away from the podcast. But I am happy to be with you. I'm a managing director at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners, and I am joined here today um, by a former colleague at GTM and friend and storage expert extraordinaire, Julian Spector. Julian is a staff writer at Green Tech Media and has been covering the uh, ebbs and flows and ups and downs of the energy storage market for years. Uh, Julian, welcome to The Interchange. It's great to be back, Shell. You've been on this podcast before. You've also been on GTM's other podcast, The Energy Gang, a couple of times. Uh, tell me all the reasons that you like me more than Jigger. Oh, um, well, I, th- I think you're uh, just cool grasp of, of data and uh, evidence-based uh, assertions is, uh, is always refreshing in today's media environment. Awesome. Um, we're definitely going to leave that in. Uh, thank you for coming here today. So I, I wanted to spend an hour talking with you about residential energy storage. And I'll, I'll offer just like a little bit of context for why I wanted to have this conversation, but then largely want to have you tell us what's going on in this market the reason for me is that I find residential energy storage to be endlessly fascinating. It it kind of breaks the mold of how we've come to think about uh, distributed energy resources, I would say, in general. And it's actually, there's some debate, I, I think, that we could have about whether even um, it, it should be sort of considered in the same category as things like rooftop solar, despite the fact that it is largely getting attached to rooftop solar, because it's got just such a different value proposition. Uh, but despite that fact, it is appears to be growing and is a big topic of interest for anybody who's involved in the residential solar market, as, as we'll talk about, was saw lots of product launches um, at Solar Power International last week. You know, the deployments are increasing at a pretty rapid clip. So this is becoming a real market. But I think it's still, still such early days that we just don't know, like, why it's becoming a real market actually and uh what it what it's going to offer in terms of benefits to customers and to the grid um and potentially to the solar market as well so just a lot going on there 
Um, maybe you can start us off by just like grounding us in the state of residential energy storage in the United States. How big is this market today? How much is it growing? Uh, give us the kind of high level picture. Right. Well, for a long time, the hype around this market totally outpaced the the actual real world activities going on. Uh, and that goes back to Elon Musk famously launching the, the Powerwall and getting thousands of people to sign up for it before it was even a, a, a real thing. Uh, and um, just pretty recently, uh, it's now become... A, a vibrant market with growth happening quarter after quarter and thousands of people taking advantage of, of this new type of product. Um, so that's actually very exciting. There's there's some real things going on finally. Um, and that was punctuated in the second quarter of this year, which is the the, the most recent one that we have data for from, uh, from the analysts at Wood McKenzie Power and Renewables. Um, that was the biggest quarter ever for U.S. residential storage installations. Um, they got 34.8 megawatts and uh, just about 80 megawatt hours installed, which um, uh, was sort of a, a number of firsts. One, it, that was more than the entire year of 2017 for residential storage. So you can think about that pace of growth that the whole year of 2017, smaller than just one quarter uh, of this year. Um, and it was also for for the second quarter a, a bigger showing than uh, what the utility scale storage segment did. So that's quite remarkable because the front of the meter batteries can be huge, you know, tens of megawatts. And uh, here we had all these tiny, tiny little uh, little home batteries adding up to more than. Um, you know what their their bigger counterparts were able to do, and we should probably contextualize that for folks who, you know, don't think in megawatts and megawatt hours all the time. Which is that's like in the the five thousand ish range, right, of number of actual installations that took place in the second quarter. Yeah, yeah, we're getting into like thousands of of installations um, per quarter, where it used to be just maybe a couple hundred. Right. Yeah. So I think like mid digit thousands per quarter is, is starting to become a real market. That means what well, we're on track for, I don't know, say 20, 25,000 of these installations this year. It still pales in comparison to residential solar where we have, you know, what, 2 million installations now in the United States in aggregate. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's enough that it's, it's like not just a, topic of conversation at conferences anymore i guess is the way that i would yeah that's fair yeah it's still very very tiny compared to solar um but increasingly i'm becoming part of the conversation and and in markets like hawaii for instance or southern california it's um really taking over the the home solar market um to the point that it's becoming rare to just do solar and not have a battery so that's that's quite a new phenomenon right that's a good segue into talking about the geography. So you mentioned Hawaii and parts of California. Just talk in general about like where are these batteries getting installed and how concentrated is it? Yeah. So California utterly dominates. Um, they, they've been at it for longer. They've thrown uh, some pretty big incentives at it and, uh, and actually keep, keep coming up with new ways to, to inspire it. But a, a, a big um, thing to keep in mind is also the economics in California are better because um, for solar customers, there's been a shift away from just pure net metering where you get paid to 
dump all your extra solar onto the grid in, in the middle of the day. Um, now that there's time of use rates where you you get paid less for, for solar exports in the middle of the day and, and also have to pay more for, for power from the grid in the evening, uh, that creates a, an economic driver to use a battery and uh, store your midday production and then save it to either export in the evening or, or, or consume in, in your house. Um, so yeah, California is still the, the king of, of all the, the home storage markets. Hawaii is, uh, is second in, in cumulative. And um, that's because for, for most people there who want to go solar now, they actually have to have a battery and uh, uh, do a self-consumption setup where they, they aren't, you know, pumping a lot of power onto the grid. That, that was a result of the early influx of solar on the islands there and the, the small island grid. Um, they had to switch to a, a different way of doing things to um, keep, keep it in balance as, as the numbers continue to grow. So you alluded to a couple of more things I wanted to talk about, which is the, the economics, which I think we should come back to. Um, but then you also talked about in California, it's becoming the norm if you install residential solar to add a battery. And certainly that was a big part of the, you know, you mentioned the like Tesla Powerwall launch in the early days and then Tesla bought Solar City. And so the story was like, you'd have, whenever you buy solar, you should attach a battery basically. Um, so we should be clear about that when we talk about this residential storage market, like how much of it is really just riding on the coattails of residential solar, or at least how much of it is coming in tandem versus how many people are just adding a battery alone? Yeah, the data that we have from Woodmax suggests that it's about um, 95% of the home battery installations are paired with solar. Um, so it's really the norm and it's it's very rare to find anyone who just wants a battery. Um, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, so one is there's no standalone uh, investment tax credit for storage at this point. So if you're adding solar, you can get the 30% off uh, from the investment tax credit. If you add a battery with that, uh, you can apply the tax credit to the whole thing. So there's a, an upfront economic incentive for, for pairing them. Um, also, Backup power and resilience is a, a really big driver for these early adopters, and uh, that um, is much better served. That that goal is much better served by having solar to recharge your battery. Um, so you can imagine if you if you only have a battery and the grid goes out, maybe you get a few hours uh, from the battery to to keep your house powered up. But once it's done, it's 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 out of juice until the grid comes back on. But if you have solar and a battery. You can island your whole house and then use the solar to recharge the battery each day. And with that combination, you can feasibly power your, yourself for quite some time and, until the power comes back. Um, yeah, so it's uh, I, I actually I can't really think of a, a customer I found who wanted just a battery by itself. I, I don't really know what the, the purpose of that would be, um, but... Um, I'm sure they they exist somewhere in this uh, wide country of ours, which is interesting, right? Like it, it makes a case that we sort of don't have a residential storage market. We just have a residential solar plus storage market that turns out to have some legs to it, but haven't really proven yet. And it's unclear even whether we should be proving that there's a market for just adding batteries to your home. I'm surprised that you don't see Tesla doing that more actually like people just buying the power wall yeah well actually so one example of a standalone 
battery pitch would be uh, involving power wells. So that's over in Vermont. Uh, Green Mountain Power, the utility there, offers this program where customers can pay a, a small monthly fee to get a power wall uh, in their house that belongs to the utility. And the the offer there is the homeowner gets backup power and then the utility can use all these scattered batteries throughout their territory to lower the system peak, um, which drives uh, cost for, for the utility and all the, the rate payers. So that, that's one where maybe that's where the, the people are ending up with a battery by themselves is you, you pay like 15 bucks for a power wall and it sits there and you get some backup power and the utility is happy. Um, but, uh, yeah, that one doesn't require solar to be part of it. So you alluded to, uh, the economics a couple of times, I think we should dive into it a little bit more because historically, I think the the case was in general, even in some of these early adopter markets, that it it really just didn't make economic sense to add a battery on its own, and that's a it's a crucial point because I think the um, analogy to the growth of residential solar breaks down when the economics aren't there because residential solar was an existing market for a couple of decades that was not growing that fast until it became such that you could finance it and save money on day one. Like the economics turned and the financing arrived and all of a sudden residential solar took off. But in the case of batteries, um, you know, there are there are a number of different ways depending on the market that you play in where you theoretically can monetize the flexibility of that battery but historically, they weren't generally enough to make the battery pay back in any reasonable period of time. Um, and so the kind of early adopters were not doing so purely for economic reasons. I guess the first question is sort of, is that still the case? Is it still the case that batteries generally don't make economic sense for customers? Ooh, that's a, it's, it really depends on how you define economic sense. Um, so uh, there's certainly a lot of people buying these for the the, the backup power, which is, you, you could describe it, I think we, we tend to think of it as less of an economic uh, return on investment kind of decision than a, a peace of mind thing. And uh, w- will I be able to just go to bed feeling good that um, if a nice storm knocks down the, the wires outside, I've got my, my clean solar power and my battery to, to, to back me up. Um, but, you know, you can also get a, a diesel generator uh, for less money and, you know, it's noisy and uh, maybe a little smelly and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, if you were looking purely at economics uh, for backup power, that that's an option. Um, now, I do think there are increasingly more geographies where you can look at a real payback. And, and that goes to the the time of use rates and the, the ability to... Uh, basically arbitrage your your solar production from times where it's less valuable uh, to times when it's more valuable. Um, and then there's a, a growing crop of these state-level programs uh, that uh, go under the moniker of bring your own device. Um, they're, they're popping up around the New England states lately that let you submit a battery that you would be getting for, for your own needs um, and you, you register it and get paid uh, for the amount of capacity that you could provide to the the utility there, um, and that's that's just another layer of of revenue that you can 
stack in with the other things to uh, come to a decision of, of wanting to buy it or not. Right. So let's maybe spend another minute on the different ways to monetize a, a residential battery. So the first one you mentioned is time of use arbitrage, which is just buy low, sell high, basically. Charge the battery when electricity is cheap and discharge it when electricity is expensive. That one is sort of an obvious longer term one. But the challenge there is that most of the country still does not have time of use rates. Totally. that's It's like a very cutting edge uh, thing, actually, which is... Um too bad because it, you know, it's it's like a more intelligent way of of incentivizing individual behavior. Uh, it's essentially saying there's there's value to the grid for not adding more solar when there's so much solar already, um, and conversely, there's value to uh, reducing customer pull from the grid in the hours when there's the highest demand. Uh, but yeah, like you said, that's that's still quite a rarity. Um, if you're looking nationwide at, you know, who, who has that kind of rate structure. Right. And it's related to why California is an early adopter here because California has mandated time of use rates. So everybody is on a time of use rate in California, but prior to California instituting the mandatory TOU rates, I remember seeing a stat that like it was 6 million customers or something like that in total that had any kind of dynamic rate, uh, in the U S residential customers. And, uh, even a lot of those dynamic rates, like they're not that dynamic, Right, so you just get like critical peak pricing, but nothing else. Um, so our rates are still pretty dumb, and the dumber our rates are, the less incentive there is to add a battery, which, or for that matter, same thing for like a smart thermostat, which just allows you to shift your load around. Then you've got this other category, which you mentioned in the context of Hawaii, which is in a market where they basically get rid of net metering, which is effectively what Hawaii has done. If you have solar. Um, there is a real incentive for you to self-consume all of your solar. And this is really what's driving residential storage in like Germany, for example, right? Which is just uh, charge the battery from the rooftop solar when the rooftop solar is producing more than the house is consuming and discharge it back into the house, never discharge it into the grid. Outside of Hawaii, do we have anywhere else in the US where that's taking hold? I haven't seen that in the US. Uh, it, it is worth mentioning overseas. There, there are markets like, uh, Germany and, and Australia, where you had a really nice feed-in tariff that was paying a whole lot of money for your your solar exports in the early days as a, a policy to jumpstart the market, and now some of those programs are starting to end, which uh, creates, uh, I guess you could say, an economic uh, impetus for for self-consumption because all of a sudden uh, you're earning so much less for your exports and compared to what you you have to pay for the grid. Um, so that's actually been a huge driver of, of the market in Australia, for instance. And then you've got these sort of bring your own device programs or the ability to participate in like a virtual power plant or the Green Mountain Power Program. And my sense of those is that they provide real potential value, but they're kind of sporadic where they exist right now. Like, you know, again, sort of available in pockets, but not widely. In pockets. And, and also so new that, uh, at least for the bring your own device, I haven't had time to really see what kind of enduring effect that has on the market, because uh, a lot of them are really just getting going and, and customers are still just learning about it today. So given all of that, do you agree that it's it's probably safe to say that the driving motivating factor for most of these residential batteries that are getting installed today is probably the backup power, the resiliency benefit? I think it's the it's the use that captures the imagination best. 
Um, if you're a, a grid walk, which actually you are, so you, you, you know, you can get down and dirty in, in comparing rates and, uh, putting together a spreadsheet to, to model out, you know, different kinds of revenue from, from solar without a battery or with a battery. But I, I think for most people, that's, that's going to be on, be beyond the, the, the customer's, um, capability and, uh, you know, anyone can think about losing power and what that feels like. Um, and then there's also certain areas where, uh, that's just a more prevalent, uh, issue than, than elsewhere. So, uh, Northern California, you know, the, the wildfires have been increasing in recent years and, uh, several of them have been caused by PG&E's wires. And, uh, the upshot of that now is that the, the utility is, uh, allowed to preemptively turn off the power um, as a safety measure to prevent uh, starting another fire if, if the conditions look dangerous. Um, so I don't know. Have you have you gotten letters from that, you know, warning you to be ready for 48 hours without power? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I live in um, I live in the East Bay, which in Berkeley, uh, which is sort of a, is a tier two fire zone. So there's three tiers, you know, t- third tier is the highest. So I'm not I'm not in like the parts of, you know, Sonoma that are at a super high risk, but I'm definitely high enough that I'm within the zone where PG&E could shut off my power. And uh, to their credit, because this is the right thing for them to be doing, I've been basically inundated with messages through every possible channel from PG&E for the past, I don't know, six months or something warning me that this could happen and telling me to prepare my, you know, power shutoff kit and all this kind of stuff. So I've, I've on one hand been getting that from PG&E. And on the other hand, I'm getting served up with ads constantly from, you know, Sunrun and other folks who are pitching me residential batteries. So, I mean, I can, I can see it as a consumer, uh, the, the like push, the question is, is it working? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think one data point on that is that, um, again, going back to the Woodmac data, they, they saw that PG&E uh, territory deployments of uh, residential batteries actually just about doubled quarter over quarter uh, this year. So, um, you know, we don't know exactly what was driving all those customer uh, decisions, but does seem to be some rapid growth in the in the part of the state that is most exposed to those power shutoffs. Um, and then uh, an even more recent uh, development is in September, um, the, the California regulators decided to allocate $100 million um, for a uh, residential battery uh, incentive, specifically in the, the wildfire risk areas. So um, this was money that had been in a, what they call an equity fund. So targeted for helping low-income customers and, and a few other groups get batteries. Um, turns out not many people were taking advantage of those funds, probably because they're still pretty expensive. So um, the, uh, the regulators decided to open up some of that money for, for people who are at the highest risk of the power shutoff to basically get to pay for the entire battery uh, system, which um, could see even more uptake as a result. The Interchange is sponsored by Schneider Electric. Today, we live in a world where the entire power system is being upended by 
trends like digitalization combined with locally based movements for more distributed clean energy. And as part of that evolution, Schneider Electric helps companies, communities, and governments embrace microgrids to realize a more reliable, resilient, and sustainable future that also benefits the changing power grid. Schneider Electric has designed and built more than 300 microgrid projects in North America alone, helping customers increase energy independence and gain more control while reaching their clean energy goals. To learn more about their microgrid energy-as-a-service funding model, say hello to Schneider Electric at the 2019 Verge Conference, October 22nd through 24th, or visit them at www.schneider-electric.com microgrid, uh, and we'll have a link there for you in the show notes so you can find out more about their microgrids. Support for this podcast also comes from PG&E. Medium and heavy-duty fleets play a big role in California's pursuit of 5 million zero-emission vehicles on the road by 2030. And with over 70 models of zero-emission vans, trucks, and buses already commercially available from several manufacturers, now is the time to take your commercial fleet electric. You don't have an excuse anymore. Wondering where to begin? Check out PG&E's free guidebook to fleet electrification and infrastructure. Get the information you need to transition your fleet to electric, including advice on charger selection, site planning, additional funding opportunities, and much more. Download your free copy of the guidebook today. No strings attached or forms to fill out at pge.com gtmev. That is going to give you the information you need to take your fleet's electric. That's pge.com gtmev. All right, so let's talk about the players in this emerging game. Um, who do we, or what do we know, I guess, about who is actually selling residential storage to customers and what products they're using? I think a, a sign that it's not a very mature market yet is just the small number of players that have been active historically. Um, Tesla, as, as a, a provider of, of batteries, still seems to be the one most people have heard of. Um, they're not the only one operating, but the, the other kind of suppliers are LG Chem um, and then uh, Sonin, the, the German startup that was recently acquired by Shell. Um, so for, for the years up until this point, it, the U.S. market at least has kind of been uh, just those names with a few other really small players that uh, popped up and, and some of whom have disappeared. Um, and if you look at the data from California's self-generation incentive program, it tends to be a split of a, about 50-50 of the batteries coming from LG Chem and, and, and coming from Tesla with Sonin as a, a very small kind of 1%. Um, those ones are, are more expensive and we should stress that uh you know, you can't assume that everyone in California who's buying a battery is necessarily applying for the S-chip incentive. So it could be that Sonin has a lot more uh, customers outside of that. But um, yeah, so that's the that's the landscape up until this point. And, um, you know, a lot of those Teslas are being installed by uh, local contractors or, um, you know, certified, certified installers. Uh, a lot of the LG Chem batteries are, are reaching customers through... Sunrun, who um, largely uses that uh, LG Chem plus SolarEdge uh, inverter combo for uh, their solar plus storage offering. Um, but uh, there's some newcomers coming to, to, to the market, which is, is going to make things more interesting. So um, yeah, I was just at Solar Power International, Salt Lake City, the, the big 
convention of, of the industry now. And um, we're seeing uh, a whole flock of new, new entrants coming on. So um, Panasonic, uh, which is already a big supplier of solar panels, now has a, a branded um, home storage solution. Um, SunPower launched its own branded uh, home battery system. Um, then one of the more kind of unusual entrants is Generac, the the decades old generator company, which acquired Pika Energy and uh, Nurio, and now is adding a, a clean home backup uh, business alongside its old, uh, you know, fossil fuel generator kind of thing. Um, so those products are coming to market in the next few months. And I'm excited to see what happens because really there just hasn't been a ton of competition and, and it'll be a lot more interesting when there's many different viable brands that have, you know, their, their own credibility kind of going at it in the, in the field here. Yeah. There's a bunch of interesting threads there. I find the Generac one really interesting as well. I mean, when I've looked into it, you know, I've been surprised to see that. So there's, there is an existing market prior to any of these residential batteries, right? There is an existing market for home backup generators, uh, that has been more or less flat as far as I could tell historically for a fairly long period of time. It's like a $2 billion a year annual market in the US and Generac basically dominates it. I think they have like a 70% market share of this market. Um, and so, but but what's been happening is that now people are doing this solar plus storage thing at small volume comparatively, but doing it nonetheless. And as far as I could tell, kind of expanding the pie, like it's not clear that it's the same customers who would have otherwise bought a generator who are now doing solar plus storage. So it's, it's sort of turns out to be maybe the thing that will unlock a larger market for resiliency at the residential level than there had been before. And so it's interesting and notable that Generac, the dominant player in the old school version of this market, which is a diesel or maybe a natural gas generator, is getting into the storage business. Now, what's interesting is they have acquired this residential storage business, but not a solar business. So to the extent that this, you know, it only makes sense to install storage along with solar thing continues, I don't know how Generac competes. Right. So they, um, they're they not trying to compete on the solar. They they want to basically hand that off uh, as a lead to to solar installers and then provide their their uh, storage uh, product and also potentially a, a generator in the mix too for, for longer periods of, of backup. Um, so that makes them interesting is they could potentially uh, partner with the existing solar installers. Um, but, uh, they, they are definitely taking a different approach. Uh, my, my colleague, uh, Emma Ferringer Merchant talked with them at SPI and, and learned that their, their main customer acquisition strategy is actually infomercials on television, uh, which is quite a different, uh, strategy than, than what we tend to hear from, from the clean tech startups you know, uh, more, more typically, but, um, you know, they, they, they've got some old school, uh, approaches that have worked for them. And, um, apparently their, their infomercials have helped them secure like a uh, hundred thousand, um, customer meetings in the, in the past year. So they, um, they think it works and, and it's a good way to educate people about a new product. Um, and yeah, for them, it's, um, you know, the, the, the generator they still see as the the best 
fit for really long term, like days of, of backup power where battery just might not have enough uh, for you. But um, the solar in the battery can make your your house more um, energy efficient on a daily basis so that that can be saving you money. Uh, day in and day out and not just sitting there waiting for for a blackout so they they see different kinds of value propositions from those two types of products back to the products that are getting launched in the market here panasonic and SunPower, and we've still got lg chem and tesla and all these other ones my prior is that this is going to be commoditized pretty quickly in the same way that largely speaking solar panels have been commoditized. Now there are exceptions to that, like SunPower has its own brand and a different technology, but you know, broadly speaking, solar has been commoditized. I don't really see any reason why batteries would be any different. Do you think there's a strong argument that that these aren't just going to be commodity products pretty soon? I think they probably will be. Um, and as an example of that, uh, if you get under the under the hood with some of these Panasonic uh, is is supplying battery cells to its own uh, home storage product, uh, but as you know, Tesla also uses Panasonic cells and and packages them up in uh, in some proprietary uh, equipment to make the Powerwall. Um, and actually, before uh, Pika got acquired by Generac, they were using Panasonic batteries for, for their home thing. So it's uh, it's kind of funny that even though there are these different brands associated with these different products, the, the key ingredient um, is actually more or less the same. Um, there's some differences among uh, folks that are using LFP, which is the lithium ferrous phosphate uh, chemistry, as opposed to the more common NMC, which is is from the the electric vehicle space, and uh, you know, you can you can have some lengthy conversations with folks about LFP being much safer and uh, you know more durable, uh, and they'll they'll really go to bat for that. But um, otherwise, yeah, it, it does the same thing. It's a, it's a battery; it can charge, it can discharge. Um, you know, we, we if you're a customer, you, you want it to last a long time, but it's kind of hard to really compare that right now without um, buying a few different brands and waiting 10 years and seeing which one falls apart first. Um, so yeah, I think there's I think there's not a ton of functional difference between each of the products. So then you get into credibility. Um, you know, is this company going to be around for 10 years to keep servicing me? Um, and that's not always easy to predict. So um, a few years ago, there was this big new entrant that was potentially going to be the one to give Tesla a run for its money, and that was Mercedes Benz, um, which had ton of money, you know, great, great uh, brand recognition uh, and and customer loyalty and all that. And uh, a couple years later, they they backed out. They they decided they couldn't make a viable run at at this market. Um, so that's that would be, I think, a main differentiator right now is, uh, do I trust this company to, to be here for the long haul? Um, because when it comes down to it, you know, the, a battery is a battery above a, a certain minimum uh, threshold. So the reason that I think residential batteries are, are so tantalizing in some ways is that, you know, there's all this talk about the provision of grid flexibility, of load flexibility, right? They're using behind the meter resources to deliver value to the grid and particularly to um, fluctuate 
the the timing of demand so as to integrate, but easier integrate renewables. And in the absence of a battery, you can do it, right? You can like make some shifts with thermostats and smart water heaters and stuff like that. Um, but a battery is a huge source of flexible load. Depending on how big the battery is and how many of them you install, it can be, you know, half of more than half of the home's load. It could be the whole home's load. Um, and it's it's sort of controllable from day one. So to the extent that this market becomes big, uh, it's an enormously valuable resource that can be leveraged to the benefit of the grid and to enable decarbonization. But I guess the question is in these kind of early days where customers are installing this stuff, um, but the sort of value propositions vary and the use cases are different. Like, what do we know about how many of these batteries that are getting installed right now have any interaction with the grid whatsoever versus just being used for backup purposes? That's a very good question. And and this is another case where the the promise of it and the the big ideas you hear in the conference circuit tend to outstrip the the real world activities a bit. Um, so as far as, you know, when you talk about grid interactivity, so how many batteries right now are actively, uh, discharging to the grid and, and helping out in a kind of broader, um, interactive way with the, the overall system. Um, I guess one, one point to make is a lot of the batteries are set up as a kind of demand reduction, um, tool. So rather than exporting in a in a traditional sense they uh, um, basically feed feed the needs of of the house so that the that customer's demand from the grid goes down um, but there have been a few initial contracts that are you know aggregating up many of those customers uh, for a, a much bigger impact overall on on grid demand um, they tend to be a few years out into the future as far as when they'll actually be operating. But Sunrun got a, a 20 megawatt capacity contract in New England. Um, Sunrun also has some smaller, more more localized deals like in uh, Oakland uh, where they're going to put batteries and solar in low-income housing. And then there's one in Glendale here. Um, as far as things that are happening sooner, Sonin uh, got this very interesting project in in Utah, actually just maybe 40 minutes drive south of Salt Lake City, where they equipped a, an entire 600 unit apartment building with their batteries. And um, they, they launched that with a contract in place with Rocky Mountain Power, the local utility. Um, so that'll give the utility pretty free reign to operate those, those uh, batteries however they need to, to reduce demand or uh, respond to unexpected peaks and uh, balance the solar production on the facility. Um, and that building actually exists now. I got, got to see it while we were out there last week. Um, so I'd say that's a that's an early precursor. Um, but yeah, it, it, at this point in time, really the batteries that are out there on the grid are probably just serving the, the local needs of, of their customer. Um, a lot of these companies will say, uh, Hey, you know, we got to get a critical mass out there. Once we do, then we can start really layering in these grid services on top, but, uh, it doesn't really work until you have more physical items installed. And then let's talk about the batteries that are not necessarily grid interactive today. So those ones are the ones that people are installing for the purpose of, of backup power, 
um, you know, you only need it when you need it, but then when you need it, you really need it. Do we know if they're working? That's another good question. Um, so one thing I've noticed is it can be a little murky when you try to unpack the the pitch around backup power with the, the real need of it. Um, so for instance, in that Sonin project, um, backup power was, was being described as, as one of the benefits for customers. And, and in that, uh, situation, the customers actually don't really have control over the battery in their apartment. It's kind of, it's sitting there in the living room. Um, but it's being operated by other entities like the, the utility. Um, so the, the one real, hard, tangible benefit the customer is supposed to get is, is backup power. But I talked to Rocky Mountain Power and asked kind of what are the outages like in this area? And they said, well, actually, it doesn't really uh, happen here. Like, it's a pretty new part of the grid. Um, we have very high reliability. Uh, and so, yeah, that that raises some questions of like, why, why do you really need a backup device in a place where uh, you almost never need backup? Um, and I, th- I think uh, it, it makes a lot more sense in like the, the California kind of fire prone areas or if you're in Florida and, and the hurricanes keep on battering you. Um, but I would say that the actual need for backup doesn't always match the uh, degree to which it gets discussed in the in the sales process. Yeah, I think that'll be one thing that's going to be really interesting to see is it, it's a it's a weird market in that the places where the backup is clearly most valuable, you mentioned Florida, right? Or like Texas or Louisiana. These are the places that need where, where customers see outages fairly regularly. It is somewhat predictable and, you know, you could easily imagine why there's value for backup power. They're not necessarily the locations where the economics are favorable because you don't have time of use rates or you don't have these programs where you can get aggregated grid value out of them. Um, And so we have this, I mean, California might sort of be an exception because of the wildfires and proactive power shutoff. But generally speaking, there's this like misalignment between the theoretical uh, locational value for backup and then the actual economic value driven by the state of the energy market. And it'll be interesting to see sort of which of those two kind of wins out for early deployments. Yeah. And I'd also say there's a misalignment between the needs of the typical American home and the actual capacity of a, of a battery system to supply it. Um, so I, I looked up the uh, Energy Information Administration's kind of average U.S. home consumption um, and uh, they peg it at about 30 kilowatt hours per day. Um, so, you know, that's broad strokes, but it's, it's worth noting that, um, you have to buy two Tesla power walls to, uh, have that much power stored. Um, and if you go on their website, that's like the minimum suggested purchase is actually a double, double up. Um, and a lot of the other mainstream battery systems are actually smaller in their energy capacity. So, um, you know, if you're a customer and, and you're, getting the pitch about backup power, it's important to ask, like, is this actually going to back up my whole home? Uh, and if so, for how long? And um, it, it gets into these much more complicated discussions of uh, choosing critical loads. And maybe you have to have an electrician kind of uh, 
do some special wiring um, for the installation to to pull off your critical loads and keep your refrigerator and your lights on, but um, not waste power on the jacuzzi or something. Um, and then that ends up adding cost and and uh, time to the to the install. Um, and yeah, it's it's ultimately a, a bit of a messier process than just this kind of uh, sleek like tech product, uh, you know. Um, high tech consumer consumer product kind of thing. It is a it is a piece of grid infrastructure that requires some real uh, expert um, labor to to install and to to fit to your your home backup needs. I mean, I don't know how you prioritize things, but I put if you have a jacuzzi, like that's that's the critical load number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's especially if you're all stressed out about the outage and you just really want to <laughs> kick back and kind of loosen up your muscles a little bit. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe you get three power walls, maybe you have a, a special one just to, to keep that jacuzzi nice and toasty. Um, all right. So last question, kind of, as you continue to monitor this market, what do you, what are you watching out for over the next year or so? Like what would be, the, what would be big milestones in your mind in the residential storage world? Well, I still have a lot of questions about the, uh, the aggregated grid services model. Um, and, the the tension there that I think is really interesting is um, the role of the customer versus the role of the tech company provider. Um, so you know the the theory is, hey, we can um, find customers who want this battery for their own needs, and then uh, kind of piggyback on their investment to provide power to the grid that's cheaper than you know everybody investing in a big gas plant or something. Um, when it comes down to it, though, you have to. There's, there's a lot of practicalities to parse. So, um, is the customer getting everything that they want out of their battery at the same time that uh, this aggregator is calling on it for the grid services? Um, you know, you can imagine if if you're largely interested in backup, but your battery was being discharged for grid services, uh, you might not have as much in there if if the the power goes out and the company didn't anticipate that. Um, then there's this kind of wear and tear issue of, uh, if, if the battery is, is getting run down over time in, in these grid services actions, um, does that interact with the, what the customer wants out of it? And then money, um, you know, that there's not really a standard model of how to compensate the hosts for, um, the, the value that their their battery provides. So historically, Sunrun has said um, they will reduce prices up front um, to uh, account for the the future revenue that they plan on getting from from the grid services value of, of their customers' batteries. Um, it could be a little hard to to know if that's really happening, um, as opposed to a kind of uh, hey, cut me a check at the end of each month based on how much you use my battery model. Um, and I think as as the bring your own device programs get going, there'll be more visibility into uh, potential revenue sharing techniques. Um, but then, you know, going back to the Sonin example, uh, you have a square footage thing where the, the, the battery is sitting in someone's living room um, and cycling on behalf of the utility uh, and, and not really directly helping the customer, uh, in, in any functional way. So, um, you could probably calculate an economic value to the square footage that's, that's being occupied 
in the service of other companies. Um, so that's that's where I'm interested coming from a consumer protection standpoint is like this could be a really cool opportunity for customers to get something they want and to feel good about helping the grid and ideally also get compensated for helping the grid. Um, but I, I don't think the industry has a, a totally clear sense yet of um, what the best practices are for that. Julian Spector is a staff writer at GTM. Uh, he joined us from Los Angeles, where he is based. I'm Shale Khan, Managing Director at Energy Impact Partners, and your sole host for this week and this week only. Stephen will be back for our next episode. Uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get other podcasts and uh, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and other places that you tell people what you think about things. Thank you for joining us. I'm Shale Khan. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from GTM. GTM.